Real leaders leave a legacy. They capture the hearts and minds of their teams. Their origin story puts the safety and well-being of their people first. Great companies ubiquitously have safe yet productive operations. For those companies, safety is an investment, not a cost for the C-suite. It's a real topic of daily focus. This is The Safety Guru with your host, Eric McCroskey, a globally recognized ops and safety guru, public speaker, and author. Are you ready to leave a safety legacy? Your legacy success story begins now. Hi, and welcome to The Safety Guru. Today, I'm thrilled to have a real guru in operations with us, Dr. Stephen Spear. He's a senior lecturer at MIT Sloan School of Management. He's the author of High Velocity Edge, probably one of the best books you can find on operational leadership and definitely one that was incredibly influential for myself. Uh, he's a winner of five Shingo Prizes. Uh, and the late Clayton Christensen, was, uh, who's himself most, one of the most influential management thinkers of his time, calls Stephen Spear uh, in a quote saying, history will judge his thesis as the finest, most impactful thesis written at Harvard. Wow. Uh, and more recently, Steve Spear has, has uh, led and has co-founded C2Solve, uh, which is a software we're going to be talking about later on, which is really about bringing some of these principles from operational leadership to organizations. Stephen, welcome to the show. Oh, Eric, thank you so much for the invitation. Really looking forward to this conversation today. So, so first, let's start out by, by hearing a little bit about your story, how you got interested in all these fascinating talk, topics around operational leadership uh, and, and even as it pertains to the Alcosa, which we're going to talk about soon, uh, to safety. Yeah, Eric, it's a, it's a great question. If I can jump to the end at the beginning, um, what we've <laughs> discovered over the years is that the difference between great, I mean, really phenomenally great, and everything else is the ability of those with responsibility and authority to tap and harness and take full advantage of the distributed and the collective genius of the people mm -hmm. who are part of their enterprises. Now, yeah. I'll get up to that. <laughs> you know, and how, how do we get to this notion of distributed and collective genius? So um, I, I came of age when the U.S. was uh, transiting from one existential mm -hmm. crisis, the Cold War, to another existential crisis, which was um, uh, industrial competition, particularly from sure. Japan. Right. And um, as part of that generation that was aware of that, new existential crisis. I was part of that whole tranche of uh, young people who got curious about what was going on in Japan um, mm -hmm. and why their companies seemed to be so much more able to uh, generate and deliver value to the marketplace than um, their American counterparts, many mm -hmm. of which had these long storied glorious histories. When I, when I started down this path, I think like many, I thought maybe there was a, a policy issue that the mm -hmm. Japanese diet, their parliament, made better law and consequently be better rules and regulations than our Congress. And I think, you know, a contemporary <laughs> audience could look at our Congress and say, well, you know, that's a reasonable explanation. <laughs> right. um, and then there, there was some thought and there was a lot of stuff. I, I found a book. <laughs> coincidentally, uh, someone had a giveaway pile on the sidewalk the other day. It was a book from about 1980, 81, which was talking about uh, cultural differences between the two societies. And, and certainly there was um, the question, was Japan somehow just better at technology? Was this an engineering problem? Right. And 
I spent a lot of time kind of searching, exploring, prospecting for where to get a hook onto a good question as to the differences in performance and a, and a good hook onto a potentially good answer. Um, that opportunity to attach a hook uh, came in the mid-90s uh, when mm-hmm. as a doctoral student at Harvard, which is where I met Clay Christensen, um, I had this uh, really unusual opportunity to learn Toyota system um, as Toyota people learn it, uh, on-site, embedded, karate kid, um, <laughs> very inductive, Socratic, mentored approach. And what came out of that was that all the explanations previously that people had given, and I think still give in terms of why mm-hmm. uh, the Toyota production system and lean manufacturing is superior, and attribute success to tools, production control tools, standard sure. work, et cetera, et cetera, they missed the point that it was the behavior of people mm-hmm. um, to be remarkably creative is in the course of doing work and then offline in terms of um, planning and preparing work. Yeah. Uh, the, the ability of people to be remarkably creative in terms of uh, seeing problems, uh, yeah. solving those problems, and then systematizing, sharing what they'd learned from that. And that this social dynamic, was really the differentiator between um, Toyota and just about everybody else. Mm -hmm. And that the social dynamic of really, really locking into uh, the innate potential of people to be genius, both in a distributed fashion and a collective fashion, that that rooted right back, right back to how leadership behaved. Mm -hmm. And, you know, bringing this forward to today, what we have found is that when you look at organizations which seem to have performance, which is way out of scale relative to any of their counterparts, sure, we see the same patterns emerging in terms of how leadership uh, cultivates, nurtures, and then grabs a hold of this distributed collective genius mm-hmm. um, in their enterprise. I, I love I love that comment, uh, and it shows up many times in your book. And when we talked last time, one of the themes you really brought up was was this very impactful sentence, really, ignorance is the real culprit. Tell me more about that, because uh, I, I think that's really the the theme that's driven across Toyota, but also in all these high-performing organizations. Yeah, that's a great question about ignorance. So you, you think about the um, conventions we have in terms of solving mm-hmm. problems, and, and there's the, the idea of a five why. It's not that you necessarily have to ask why a problem exists five times. Sure. It's not like uh, I, I think the five has um, uh, has two reasons. One, the, the people who are inventing this, they were saying, look, Steve, Eric, don't be superficial in your analysis. Mm-hmm. Ask why. Yeah, that's good. But then keep going. Don't don't stop it once or twice. You're mm-hmm. going to get a superficial answer and ge- consequently generate a superficial solution. So I think that's one reason they said five. Sometimes it could be 10. It could be 15. The other thing is the people who popularized this notion of five, why were Japanese mm-hmm. Japanese and uh, the number five in um, in Japanese. One of its pronunciations is a homophone for the word luck. And uh. so uh, <laughs> you know, they could have said four wise, but the homophone for the word four in Japanese or one of the homophones is uh, death. And so okay. you know, <laughs> the idea of, you know, once is superficial, four times is not, is not really fortuitous, but five, five shows some depth. And also you're not only you invoking uh, depth, but good luck. But anyway, right. um, this idea of um, 
this uh, th- this whole notion of asking questions and going and going and going till you get to the point of having um, deep understanding is just so mm-hmm. fundamentally um, important in these organizations. Yeah. Um, and now, now this gets back to your question about ignorance is uh, the real curse. Is that if you if you take your five whys or ten whys or fifteen whys, and you keep going, at some point you're going to get to the and the real cause, which is we just didn't understand. Why'd mm. you make A and not B? We just didn't understand that the customer wanted B. Why'd you make it with a defect? Because we knew how to make it with a defect. We didn't know how to make it without without defect. Why did it arrive late? Because what we knew how to do, we knew how to arrive late. We didn't know how to arrive on time. Right. And so if you start off with the assumption that any deficiency is rooted in ignorance, then you're uh-huh. going to keep asking the why, 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 you know, beyond five maybe, to the point that you get to the thing that you really, really, really didn't understand. And that's where you have to invest your time and energy to come up with um, solving the problem with some discipline so that the consequence of the solution is not just sort of pasting over the symptom, mm-hmm. but it's the generation of some new profound wisdom. That's what Edward Deming called it. Right. New profound wisdom, you know, profound knowledge, I think is the term you actually use. New profound knowledge that has recurring use. So um, if things go wrong, simply, you know, it, you know, when you get through all your whys, because uh, we simply didn't understand, then uh, the solution to every problem is some profound knowledge that has been gotten by seeing a problem, investigating it in a non-superficial fashion, and coming up with a solution, which is also non-superficial. I, I love it. And, and so let's transition to the Alcoa case study, uh, because Alcoa, I think, is the, the Leopold O'Neill was known for having driven a phenomenal transformation from a safety standpoint. Um, but what's interesting is is really in your, 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 your case study from in your book really talks about how it's much more profound than even just impacting safety. It was really about discovering, eliminating issues, problems, and improving. So maybe if you could walk through some of the things that you've learned from Alcoa and what was their success. Yeah, it's great. I'm so happy to talk about Alcoa. I spend a lot of time working with those folks, have great um, appreciation and infection, uh, affection for them. And uh, in particular, you mentioned the late Paul O'Neill, whose life was um, characterized uh, by service right? Um, and also some core values. And, and just mm-hmm. to, as a setup for the case, and you'll see how this comes through when I tell the case, Paul had this fundamental belief um, that... Um, Everyone, not some people, but everyone deserve to have a good experience and that the good experience should be all the time. And we're not talking, you know, pina coladas poolside. But if you <laughs> went into work, work should be for you um, a rewarding experience where sure. at the very least you left as good as you came in and ideally you left better. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Paul had this uh, great sense of, I don't know, egalitarianism or, you know, democratic democracy with a small d about what uh, people were truly entitled to. But he also had this very optimistic notion that um, everyone was a potential contributor, right? So and you'll, you'll see as I unpack the Alcoa case, I just want to, as we get it set into this, I just want to um, do some anchors for, you know, the contemporary listeners like mm-hmm. Alcoa, what do they even make? You know, is that t- aluminum foil, you know, whatever. 
So just to bring it uh, up to present, you know, I think a lot of people noticed that Amazon in the last couple of weeks made a big deal about um, improving the uh, the workplace safety of uh, their employees, particularly working in warehouses. So I think the current uh, injury rate, this is um, reportable events. Uh-huh. I think their current rate is uh, 5.6. And what that means is for if you've got 100 people, right. um, five, you know, some five can expect to be injured in the course of the uh, the working year. And so their current um, level is 5.6. The uh, stated goal within the next few years is um, half that, so 2.8. Just want to still ex- really high. Right, yeah, yeah. So I'm glad you picked up on that because <laughs> if you can imagine what goes on inside, inside an Amazon facility, it's people moving boxes, you know, some big boxes, little boxes, moving boxes. What goes on inside an Alcoa facility is people working really in dangerous. some cases with uh, <laughs> molten metal, which has a melt point that, let's say, of plus or minus 1,400 degrees Fahrenheit, ingots which can weigh many many tons are uh, things come out coming out of um um extrusion dies you know sharp fast um mm-hmm. um you know whipping around and alcoa's starting point and the point at which they were having like this huge paranoia and anxiety about safety their starting point was 2.8 <laughs> or thereabout right. so Amazon's goal is to get to where Alcoa started. So it's something to keep in mind. Yeah. The the other thing I'll offer is that um, Alcoa's endpoint was near perfect safety with right. um, a reportable rate, something like 0.07% a year. Mm-hmm. Which is um, phenomenal. Like if you think yeah. about that industry, the hazards involved, I mean, Anything that's a at risk environment, that's a phenomenal uh, rate. In terms yeah, of it's crazy. Look, look, I agree with you. And just to personalize it, I think I mentioned in the book, um, at at a rate of um, let's say uh, two point eight percent a year, mm-hmm. the odds are that each year you will know someone who gets hurt. You know, sure. right? Because it's two, three out of a hundred. The odds are that in the course of your career, twenty, thirty years, the odds are you're going to get hurt. Right. You know, better better than half. When you're down at 0.07%, you can go – you have reasonable expectation that not only won't you be hurt in the course of a career, mm-hmm. you have a reasonable expectation that no one you know in your facility will be hurt in the course right. of a career. So th- these are the you know these really staggering differences. Right. So, so tell me a little bit about how Paul O'Neill got there. What, what was the – the message, because I think there's a there's a safety story around it, but there's also this element around continuous learning, and I, and I think that's really the part that is really yeah. phenomenal in 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 this story. Yeah, that's right. That's absolutely right. So Paul's approach to getting mm-hmm. from you know to something to nearly zero, it tied back to Paul's values, right? right. Which is um, everyone deserves a good experience, and everyone's a potential contributor. And it also ties back to a point you raised early in our conversation, which is the root of all problems is ignorance. Right. So in terms of safety, when Paul started asking the question, well, why is it people get hurt? Mm-hmm. You could imagine, and again, Alcoa at that point was, you know, well past 100 years as a company, um, operating in a headquartered in a city where other, you know, high risk, mm-hmm. high hazard, heavy industries that existed, steel, et cetera. You know, people might have said, look, Mr. O'Neill, you have to understand with all due respect. <laughs> and when you get that, of course, you know, when someone says, you know, <laughs> you, know you have to understand with all due respect, um, they're really showing you no respect. <laughs> True. Right. They said, you know, this is very dangerous what we do. 
right. Um, you know, the, the melt point and the, the mass and the velocity and the momentum of stuff. And uh, Paul said, well, is it in the mind of the aluminum to hurt our associates? I'd be mm-hmm. like, what are you talking about? No, it's an inanimate object. He said, well, <laughs> the reason then that we're, that we're and, and, and I want to focus on Paul's choice of language. He said, mm-hmm. the reason we are hurting people, we, mm-hmm. the leadership, are hurting people is we simply don't understand how not to hurt them. That right. what we know how to do is create conditions in which we can hurt them, in which we do hurt them. But we ha- haven't yet figured out what those conditions look like so that they uh-huh. don't get hurt while still doing their job. Now, with this idea that ignorance is the root cause of all things bad, in this case of uh, workplace hazard rather than uh-huh. the source of workplace safety, Paul set up a system which falls into this uh, pattern of make sure that if there's a problem, it's seen and seen early and often. If it's seen, that it gets swarmed both to be contained and also to be resolved. And that whatever's learned from seeing and solving the problem. I mean, sometimes what you learn is that the problem exists, which is good to know because, you know, if if I stumble, it's a good point to say, hey, Eric, be careful. There's a stumble point over here. Mm -hmm. But certainly if there's a resolution, that the resolution be um, systematized so that there's um, system benefit to the problem. And, and, and in the book, I, I describe these um, mechanisms Paul put in place, appropriate for a company, large, sprawling, international, industrial, right. uh, pre-internet, et cetera, that if an employee got hurt, Paul insisted that he find out within 24 hours. Now, again, this mm. is in, in an era of desk phones, no cell phones, right? <laughs> right. You know, it's another, well, why couldn't they just text them? Because one, they didn't have phones. <laughs> but other, and two, you had to make sure that you got to your desk to call him at his desk. But right. the other thing Paul insisted was that he find out from the uh, the president of the business unit in which mm. the injury occurred. Now you start thinking about two things right. out of this. One, for the business unit president to know that someone had gotten injured in a remote facility the alert system had to start literally immediately because the right. number of um, layers separating the president of a business unit from the person working on the shop floor, we once counted, I think it was like two dozen or a dozen, some crazy number. And this is all people calling each other on desk phones. <laughs> the other part, so one was the kind of to activate the system right away. The other one was Paul kept coming back to, it's the responsibility of leaders, those with authority. Right to create conditions in which other people can succeed. And so he didn't want to get a report from somebody else lower down in the, um, uh, the, the chain of responsibility. He wanted from the business unit president. Mm-hmm. The second piece, again, and this is the, around both the activation speed, but also uh, making clear who was responsible for the conditions in which other people um, operated. Within 24 hours, he wanted to know from the business unit president what initial inquiries um revealed about a uh, source right. of the problem and yep. uh, possible corrective action. Mm-hmm. That forces very rapid learning, right? Because now you've got an executive who's very interested in making sure I understand what happened. Absolutely. Absolutely. And if I could add w- w- one point to that, mm-hmm. when I wrote the case for the book, look, it came out of knowing Paul and I, I had the good fortune of knowing Paul for the better part of two decades. I consider that a real blessing. I also got to know um, a lot of other senior leaders, plant managers, and other people um, tasked with uh, spreading this type of thinking and doing within Alcoa. So when I wrote the case study, I think I wrote the case study from their perspective, you know, not surprisingly. 
more recently, I've had a chance to think about the perspective um, from the shop floor, mm-hmm. uh, you know, which I also had experience and just I don't think I gave it nearly the credit and the people working there. I don't think I think I gave I don't think I I don't think I know I didn't give them the <laughs> credit they deserved. But you start thinking about what 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 Paul did with this. And it gets back to this uh, sort of very um, sort of um, egalitarian, democratic, optimistic view of all people. Right. Is that kind of the Tayloristic view of management and labor is that management thinks and labor does. Right. And Alcoa, and I say Paul, but I think it's really true of Alcoa as, as, a, as a community, as an enterprise, you know, senior, junior, here, there. Mm-hmm. Alcoa adopted the attitude that um, the person doing work had an, had an enormous amount to contribute um, by use of his or her intellect. And that right. his or her intellect actually was um, the best tuned to recognizing that something was amiss. Because, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, how everyone knows this, that the closer and closer you are to something, the more the subtlety, the more the nuance, the more the detail that you can perceive. And so mm-hmm. this whole approach at Alcoa of um, this rapid uh, acceleration, escalation of problems started with the assumption that the people on the shop floor actually had a lot to say. Right. And um, this idea that they had the right, the obligation, the responsibility, the opportunity to call out hazards and risks, I think was a very positive statement about this uh, inclusive view of management. Mm-hmm. The fact that they had an opportunity to um, trigger and participate in the investigation of the cause, again, I think reflected this very inclusive um, egalitarian view of uh, people's innate potential to be creative. The fact that uh, that associates were part of a team that both helped construct corrective action, though sometimes right. that took you know, some really deep technical knowledge, sure. but were there to validate it, right? Because th- at right. the end of the day, they were the ones who had to um, use and depend on the corrective action. Again, I think reflected this very egalitarian view that mm-hmm. um, everyone has in a creative potential to contribute to the larger enterprise. And um, we start considering that view of the workforce, mm-hmm. that everybody can contribute in a distributed fashion, their genius. And everyone, right. if we go through this, see a problem, solve a problem, and then systematize, that um, everyone can contribute their distributed genius to the collective genius. That's really an outrageous statement Absolutely. by the head of an, a large, heavy industry firm right. in the early 1990s. It, it's phenomenal. And, and I think the other element you touch on briefly as well is the impact of alcohol. Obviously, uh, Paul had had shared to the street that he wanted to drive um, an impact around safety, and, and it was really a rallying cry around it. But it improved operational performance, financial performance as well. Yeah, hundred percent, Eric. You know, and it gets it gets back to a point you made right early on, which is um, the root cause of our deficiencies is ignorance and nothing else. Right. So, the attitude within Alcoa was that um, when you finally found out why someone was facing a risk or a hazard, the reason was the situation was understood well enough to present mm-hmm. them with the risk or the hazard. It wasn't well understood enough to uh, present them with a, a safe operating environment. Right. Now, of course, if you're ignorant about a situation that it's risky and hazardous, you're probably ignorant in ways that uh, will express itself in terms of uh, mm-hmm. 
um, <laughs> impact on quality, impact on yield, impact on uh, timeliness, effectiveness, efficiency, right. et cetera, et cetera. Look, I- ignorance, <laughs> ignorance <laughs> is uh, non-discriminating. If you're ignorant, um, it will affect all aspects of your life, not just <laughs> one or two where you're right. great at everything else. And so this um, using safety as a hook mm-hmm. to um, recognize, acknowledge, and then attack ignorance meant that you were recognizing and attacking the fundamental causal factor for all the things that ailed you. Right. And I think that's, to me, the the power of Alcoa is, is an element of, obviously, there was this deep-rooted desire to, to create an environment that wouldn't harm anybody. Uh, but he also knew, because I've heard some executives question, uh, how is it that he went to the street and said, we're going to focus first on on safety, and how did anyone tolerate it? I think his, my assumption is he understood that by removing the ignorance, by by learning how we could get better, everything would get better. That's right. So he, he got that. And look, I, I knew Paul, like I said, um, for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, long enough, I can consider him a mentor, you know, not just an acquaintance or a famous guy I knew, but a, a mentor. And and Paul was really an, an interesting character because on the, you know, on the one hand, he had this phenomenal brain Mm-hmm. and uh, analytical capability that was just off the charts. Um, I think he was in some fashion involved with the RAND organization. And at RAND, he was probably putting mm-hmm. other people to shame regularly. Hmm. But he also had this uh, ethical element. And I, I never got into Paul's personal history enough. I know a little bit to get a sense of where it came from. Mm-hmm. But th- th- this um, view that as uh, as a leader, you're responsible to everybody over whom you think you have authority, that uh, authority and responsibility are not ever decoupled. And uh, I I would just offer this is that um, if we look at the the consistently exceptional organizations, um, Mm -hmm. it's common, not uncommon, for the um, people with authority to realize that they also have this – integrated um, responsibility, responsibility that can't be decoupled from the authority. Sure. I mean, I certainly saw that at uh, um, Toyota through and through and in the um, the military organizations where I've had, you know, close familiarity over about the last decade or more. And um, the ones that are the high performing ones, lead, leaders view authority and responsibility um, as tightly, tightly coupled. This episode of the Safety Guru Podcast is brought to you by Propolo Consulting, the leading safety and safety culture advisory firm. Whether you are looking to assess your safety culture, develop strategies to level up your safety performance, introduce human performance capabilities, re-energize your BBS program, enhance supervisory safety capabilities, or introduce unique safety leadership training and talent solutions, Propolo has you covered. Visit us at propolo.com. Right. So, so you're talking about military. Why don't Why don't we pivot now to some of the the work you've done with the U.S. Navy? Sure. Uh, there's some some great examples of it within your book, uh, but I, I think as well some of the the work you've been touching more recently on the USS Mason uh, is worth. Uh, touching on, particularly because a lot of of people deal with a very distributed organization. And and I think a lot of, even if I think on the safety space, a lot of people have a sense of how do I manage it when there's a shop floor where I can see everybody. But in in the U.S. Navy, you've got an incredibly distributed workforce. 
how I influence them to make the right safe choice when nobody's watching is incredibly challenging yet essential. So maybe if you could get into a little bit of, of your work there, I think that would be really beneficial. Yeah, you got it. So as far as the reference in the book, I have a, a case that I think in chapter five or so about um, Admiral Rickover, who really was the father of uh, the Navy's nuclear program. And um, it, it's an interesting Mm-hmm. pairing because the Paul O'Neill case is in chapter four and then Hyman Rickover is in chapter five. And you see with Rickover also this um, incredible, paranoid, passionate, hyper-energetic um, attack on ignorance as the source of anything that would prevent the Navy from fielding um, nuclear propulsion that was um, nothing less than short of perfect in right. terms of safety, reliability, et cetera. Um, anyway, I, I do encourage people who, again, especially on the topic of safety and issues like that, that um, the U.S. Navy over the uh, its experience with nuclear propulsion, which goes back to the mm-hmm. mid-50s, that there's been, um, forget loss of life, there's been no injury nor um, environmental harm due to reactor failure on board a U.S. Um, right. nuclear-powered ship. And I think, uh, you know, people old enough to remember that the Soviets would be losing a nuclear-powered submarine, you know, every year or two with great tragedy for the crew, the crew's family, yep. the fleet that lost a ship, the uh, the seas where the ship was lost, et cetera. Um, in terms of the, the reference to the Mason, I just want to be clear. I, I, I have – it's a great example. I've, I've actually done other work with um, the Navy in, in terms of some of his – Issues that some of its different fleets have had. But the Mason is a great example where not where things went wrong, but where things went right. So here's right. the setup. The, the Mason is a destroyer, which in, in the scheme of things is one of the uh, the smallest ships that ever gets tied to it, gets mm-hmm. attached to a task force. You know, people are aware of the uh, the aircraft carrier, you know, the 70-some-odd, right. you know, um, catapult launch planes, Top Gun, all of that stuff. <laughs> um, but it turns out there are these other ships that um, make the aircraft carrier – it's presence possible. You've got the cruisers and the destroyers, which do all sorts of things um, in terms of creating a, a cocoon of safety within which the aircraft carrier can operate. And so um, one of these destroyers, of which there are many, is uh, a ship called the USS Mason. And uh, the Mason happened to be um, assigned, this is October 2016 or so, beginning of right. the month, um, in the, uh, the straits that... Um, pass right past Yemen mm-hmm. across from Ethiopia going into the Red Sea. Right. And um, in the course of that week, this mm-hmm. is the first week of October, the Mason came under attack three times. Hmm. And you start thinking about, let, let's just, oh. let's do, now the Mason, uh, uh, you know, got out of there um, unscathed. Well, let, let's just think about the counter, uh, the counterfactuals. Mm-hmm. What if um, one of these attacks had damaged the Mason? Right. That immediately becomes a presidential problem. Right. Right. What if one of those attacks um, sinks the Mason? Mm-hmm. It definitely becomes definitely. a presidential <laughs> problem. Now, you know, you start thinking about this. This is October 2016. So um, this is right before the election. This is President Obama. And you got to think that President Obama, you know, let's say the 3rd of October, he didn't go to sleep that night wondering, gee, I wonder how the USS Mason is doing in those straits going into the into the Red Sea. Right. Wasn't on his, you know, pun, pun intended, wasn't on his radar at all. Right. And he probably would have been really, really um, sort of, uh, dis, not, you know, a 
upset, <laughs> disappointed if he had gotten, you know, a nudge from his national security advisor. Um, sir, you have to wake up now. Um, there's been an issue with the, uh, the USS Mason uh, transiting in these straits near the Red Sea. Mm-hmm. But for whatever, whatever else um, aggravated President Obama in early October 2016, it was not the USS Mason. <laughs> it didn't get hit. It didn't get um, sunk. It didn't um, act in retaliation and cause civilian casualties. It went about her business. Now, you ask the question, how is that possible? Mm -hmm. Now, let's set it up even further, that the USS Mason was uh, the the commanding officer, probably was in his or her early 30s. Right. Um, Not that old in the scheme of things. You know, I I mean, when I was in my 20s, 30 seems like so (laughs) mature. But, you know, now that 30 is not, you know, not not that all experienced. Um, and in fact, oh, you know, let's think about the things that wake up the president, right? So you've got the, the, uh, the damage to the mason, the sinking of the mason, the mason overreacts, or the mason flees, right? Mm. All of those, all of those are a wake up for the president. And none right. of those happen. The mason just, you know, um, I don't know what the nautical equivalent is of stood her ground, but she stood her ground. She didn't leave. Mm-hmm. And, and she didn't leave because her uh, commanding officer um, was running the ship in such a way that the mason was able to respond um, appropriately and effectively and efficiently. Now, the other thing I want to put in mind in mind here is that, not surprisingly, a warship is a twenty four seven operation. Right. And there are times where the commanding officer of the ship may be the the commanding officer of operations in the moment, mm-hmm. but that that commanding officer um, has other responsibilities, has to eat and sleep and take care of all of those things. Mm-hmm. And it turned out that at least during um, some of these three events, when the Mason was under attack. It wasn't the commanding officer who was orchestrating the response. It was the officer of the deck. Now, the right. officer of the deck, and not even the executive officer, who also is almost a peer of the commanding mm-hmm. officer. The officer of the deck is uh, typically one rank below, um, a few years younger. So now we're talking about this very expensive ship in harm's way being uh, commanded in the moment by someone in his or her late 20s. And um, handled the situation in such a way that no one bothered to tell the president. Right. Um, at least not wake him up with a, a, a real concern. Now, you, you get into the question, how is that possible? Well, you have to think about the enormous, enormous capability of the commanding officer, of mm-hmm. the executive officer, of the tremendous capability that they had with the help of others, obviously, mm-hmm. built into their crew so that the officer of the deck um, who was running that particular watch um, could conduct themselves with such effectiveness, effect, effectiveness, efficiency, poise, and calm mm-hmm. in the face of potential harm. Um, it's really quite remarkable that that capability is so far flung across the world when you consider the distances right. from the Naval Academy, your ROTC programs, the Naval Yard, the Pentagon, this far-flung capability to um, act in the right way, the character to act in the right way, and the connectivity that in the course of action, there's both the uh, extreme delegation of uh, responsibility and authority, but also connection to the task force and the task force to the fleet and the fleet to the Navy, that um, that commanding officer and that executive officer and that officer of the uh, the deck, they were never alone. They were never alone. Tremendously capable, very high character, but also connected, so they were never alone. 
Right. And I think the other part you you share predominantly in the book is really around how the U.S. Navy does incredibly well at same similar to what you talked about with Alcoa, seeing opportunities, solving them, and then sharing and embedding it across the fleet. Uh, can you touch on that briefly in terms of, of how that plays into this as well? People in the Navy have told me, so if there's any Army listeners on the line here, um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, not meaning to, this is not a go Navy, beat Army kind of thing. All right. So not at all. But what Naval officers will explain is that um, for most of the Navy's history, not only didn't they have control of their distributed forces, mm-hmm. they had no contact with them. True. Because, right. you know, it, you know, if you ever seen that, um, what was it, <laughs> Russell Crowe, uh, Master and Commander or whatever that right. movie is, right? You know. When that dude left port with a wave goodbye from the queen, you know, he carried orders basically which said to the effect, you know, for the next year or two or three that you, your ship and your crew are away, right. um, act on behalf of the queen, <laughs> you know, <laughs> right. Or, you know, or, you know, in, in, in American parlance, you know, act on behalf of the nation. Sure. Um, and, uh, you know, for for the entire period that ship was gone, it, it's very possible that there was uh, no contact mm-hmm. with anyone senior. It, right. it, was, it was all the captain. So um, now, out of fairness to my army friends, the truth is, back before the invention of telegraph and radio, mm-hmm. when you sent someone over the horizon on a horse, um, you also had. <laughs> but I, I think I think what's fair about the navy is. The, the eventual distances were very great and the period of separation was also very long. Right. But this is not army, you know, that the army always had this very tight sort of, sure. uh, you know, Tayloristic command control. All right. So anyway, I just want to make sure <laughs> I'm not trading on a green blue thing here. Um, what's been explained to me is that uh, a service with a history of sending, you know, um, ships and crews off, unable to um, supervise them, meant that when you sent them off, you had to have, really great confidence in their capability and their character because uh, once they were over the horizon, there was literally nothing that you could do for them because you just didn't know. Back to our ignorance problem. The point of emphasis that um, Mm -hmm. the same instructors have given me is said, look, you know, now we're in the age of GPS and rapid communication satellites, this thing, that thing. He said, but in the moment, there was no on-the-fly support you could have given the CO, the XO, or the officer of the deck mm-hmm. of the Mason. Things were happening uh, too fast. Right. That um, there just wasn't time to escalate this up to this task force or the fleet and certainly the Pentagon to say, what should I do? Right. That you had to have that capability, that intelligence, that genius already developed and um, dispersed around the world. Mm-hmm. So you didn't have to wake up President Obama with the sinking of the mason right 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 so again this this element of um driving good decision making but also trusting uh people to make the right choice similar to what you were talking about alcoa this this strong belief that i've got the right people there yeah that's right that's right and and a belief which was validated by the huge the huge investment in building that capability sure and selecting people on their character. I mean, I just tie it back to Alcoa because it's such a good example. So within Alcoa, you know, I mentioned this, uh, these mechanisms for 
getting the system activated around a, a recognized risk or hazard. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, we talked on the positive that if someone is at risk or hazard, that the problem is seen and then escalated sure. within 24. Paul O'Neill made a point um, when it, that escalation didn't happen. It once happened that the escalation didn't occur. He found out about it in a very sort of uh, awkward, embarrassing fashion. He fired the president of the business unit. And, and to be clear, you know, normally when you fire someone in an organization, you say, oh, well, you know, getting rid of Bob here. And no, no, when I get here, Bob has chosen after a glorious career to leave so he can spend more time investing in his family and his community. Right. And um, when when this guy, the head of the, uh, the, the automotive business unit um, left, Paul O'Neill, in a, a particularly frank and parsimonious say, Bob, we fired him. Why did we fire him? Dude's a bum. Why, why is he a bum? Because he had an obligation to make sure that if a problem was um, recognized, right. it got escalated, as was the investigation and the resolution. And he didn't do that. And because he didn't do that, he left other people exposed Right to similar risk and hazard, and that makes yeah. him a bum, and we're firing him. And if he, yes, he can spend more time with his family <laughs> and invest more time in his community, but that's not why he's leaving. We're firing him because we're firing him because he's a bum. And uh, anyway, you get the reason I bring this up. Mm-hmm. It gets back to this issue of trust, right? Which sure. is, um, it's a validated trust mm-hmm. that Paul O'Neill, um, and his senior leadership spent a lot of time checking the character of people. Right. That they could trust them with these really, um, in some cases, life-altering decisions mm-hmm. and make sure that they had the capability and the support that um, when faced with such decisions, that they had um, both the uh, the technical capability, the authority, the responsibility, um, and the support back to the mother organization mm-hmm. if they needed technical support and whatnot to do the right thing. And what we see with the Navy, with the Mason example, is um, – this tremendous investment in capability, this tremendous uh, develop, screening, but also development of character, and also this uh, connectivity to resources that if you really find yourself in a situation where you need help, you can ask for that help. Sure. And, and that becomes a recurring um, pattern. You know, we've got it, uh, we see it in the Navy, we see it with Alcoa, certainly we see it with Toyota yeah. around um, developing of capability, screening and development of character, and then this connectivity too. And so, so you brought up Toyota. I think it's it's a good transition. I, 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 there's a case study that you wrote. I don't think it's the one specifically in the book, uh, but it, it, there's a separate one that I remember picking up. It was also a Harvard Business Review article a while back, and and it really has to do with the onboarding a new leader at Toyota and the investment right. in coaching the coach, uh, which I think is is phenomenal. I've never seen anywhere else that level. Can you touch on that briefly? Because I think that's also key is really how, how do you get a leader to become a better coach? Yes, yeah, so that, that's great. Um, so the case you're referring to is about this fellow, Bob Dallas, who went from a fairly senior um, management leadership position at one of the big three mm-hmm. to Toyota. And you know the irony is that um, the reason he went to Toyota is he wanted to uh, work for an American-based manufacturer of cars. I mean, it sounds funny, <laughs> but the big three were you know sort of going um, – "Quote unquote offshore and elsewhere, right. and Toyota, I think now is maybe the second largest automaker in the in, in the, the US. continental U.S. Yeah. or North America. Anyway, it's crazy. So anyway, um, and, and if anyone wants to read that 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 case, I think in chapter nine of my book, I'll make it available a copy mm-hmm. to you, and you can put it up on your site and whatnot. Sure. Uh, people can just click and download it. But the um, the storyline there is you have this guy who's uh, phenomenally skilled. He's got all these advanced degrees. He's got all this great accolades and experience." 
And yet they don't slot him into a position when he shows up. He goes through this um, 12-week onboarding mm-hmm. mentorship. And if anyone has seen either the early the, the pre the, the Mr. Miyagi version or the the, the Jackie Chan uh, <laughs> you know, version of the karate kid, it's wax on, wax off, put yes. your jacket on, take your jacket off, kind of just like this steady, steady introduction into ways of thinking and ways of doing, which even for this very accomplished guy, mm-hmm. he didn't understand. And as people read through the case, and I don't think this is a, a spoiler, so no need for an alert. He learned a lot about the technical aspects of um, seeing and solving problems with really, really high accuracy and acuity. Mm-hmm. But one of the things he also came to appreciate was the uh, the critical importance of group leaders right. in a system in which you're trying to um, develop and then take advantage of the distributed genius of the enterprise. And the the way the case ends, one of the surprise endings is that he realizes that to fix the production processes to which he was first exposed, the solution wasn't technical. The solution was social. Right. And the social solution was building capability and the, uh, the group leaders who could build the capability and the team leaders who could build the capability and the, um, the associates, mm-hmm. um, somewhat akin, I guess, to the USS Mason story, right? Which right. is, the Navy realizing they have to build a commanding officer who can build the capability um, of the officer of the deck. Sure. And I think that the part there, I mean, the 12 weeks is, is unheard of um, perhaps in the military, but, but unheard of in industry. And from, from what I remember of the case study, it starts where he, he was driving problem solving at a front line and eventually became coach to the coaches so he's coach to the other leaders right so it's a very thoughtful progress that to, to, to force somebody to really start thinking about how do i influence in a senior leadership role others in terms of how they show yeah. up that's phenomenal that's right right yeah it, it was really you know that chapter nine um kicks off with this case about this fellow bob dallas who has this huge epiphany that his job as leader is building capability of others. And then it has these other examples. So there's a, an example of the, um, the president, the site leader at Toyota's uh, mm-hmm. Indiana plant, a fellow great guy. I, m- I met him and had, he was usually generous with his time to me, a fellow named uh, Aaron Buffuno. And, um, you know, his daily work included making sure that this cascade of capability was going on. So every day, you know, hmm. Norm had his, uh, you know, his uh, very quick morning meetings, morning updates. And then he went on the floor. But it wasn't an arbitrary management by walking around. Yeah. He went very specifically to um, a significant um, problem-solving improvement undertaking. Mm-hmm. And he went with the entire chain of command that connected him directly down to the group leaders who were leading this effort. And, um, you know, as I, I, as I recount in the book, He's there maybe to lend some perspective, technical expertise. But what he's doing is making sure the the dynamic is working, right. that the group leaders are capable of engaging team leaders. And the reason they're capable is because they're being engaged by their assistant managers and the managers mm-hmm. and the area managers and the general managers, all the way up to all the people um, that link um, Norm directly with the shop floor. Right. And then there's other examples in there. Um, and I'll just – this is just sort of – what do they call it in a movie? A trailer. <laughs> There's a great example of uh, a very senior Toyota executive turning a car into uh, a post-it noted pinata. 
Enough said. <laughs> read the chapter. I think you'll enjoy it. <laughs> and, and I think the other part that struck me is a, a lot of the improvements, they were trying to, to find ways to improve the quality, but also productivity, but also safety or ergonomics, depending on the circumstances of the work. So it, it, there was not a limiting belief of, I can only fix one dimension. It was, let's improve all three. Eric, not only are you like 100% right, but it's a phenomenal point. It reflects the sort of fundamental uh, optimism, but also humility of those people who are right. really, really good at this. And when I say those people who are really, really good at this, it, it, it's a few. I mean, look, everyone has this <laughs> potential, but I think very few actually exploit it enterprise-wide. Sure. So the, um, the optimism is that when we look at a situation which is just littered and, and infused with our own ignorance – um, the optimism is that as we convert that ignorance into profound knowledge, we don't have to worry about trade-offs, at least not as we're going through this mm. ignorance into knowledge transition, that um, we can improve safety as we get smarter. Um, and as we improve safety, because we're getting smarter about the situation, we can improve productivity and quality and timeliness mm -hmm. and yield and, 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 not right. or, or, or. Exactly. Well, let me just offer back that this is um, – I don't know where people get these ideas. If you go back to Henry Ford, he was also a humble optimist. Right. That when he talks in his book um, Today and Tomorrow about how they compress the time to make a Model T from you know, weeks down to days, it, his was an and, and, and story of right. we, we didn't know how, so we investigated. By investigating, we got smarter. And by getting smarter, we improved quality. And we mm -hmm. investigated and we got better and at um, efficiency and that yield, and that safety, and that cost, et cetera. Right. So um, that, that's where this optimism comes in, is that when we're in situations, the situations are not trade-off situations of A or sure. B. It's uh, learning um, situations, and we can get better at A and B. So that's the optimism. I think the other part is, uh, I think in order to learn, you need some humility to mm -hmm. admit that in a situation, uh, there's a lot more to know than you currently know. Right. Um, and again, it ties back to the optimism, which is, you know, I may be as dumb as a rock today, but I'm not going to be dumb as a rock tomorrow. <laughs> right, exactly. And, and I think this is really, to me, the theme between all three of the case studies and really appreciate you sharing them between ACOA, U.S. Navy, Toyota leadership uh, scenarios. It's really about how do I tap into the greatness that I already have and how do I, 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 I focus that to improving the operations in a broad sense, right? So ACOA... It's heard, it, it's talked about in the safety space, but it, it touches all three dimensions. The Toyota one, all three dimensions, U.S. Navy, all three dimensions. It's really not, yes. um, let's go fix this one problem. It, it's it's really this sense of learn and become better. So I think it's yeah. phenomenal case studies. Yeah, let's, let, let's go recognize where we don't know mm -hmm. and correct for that. And if we correct for that, everything else, it will be a, a second and third order positive effect. Yeah. So, so I think these are phenomenal stories. Uh, one last question, Steve, uh, is uh, you've recently kicked off, uh, you founded a software, uh, C2Solve, uh, which is, at, I think, C2Solve.com. Um, can you tell me a little bit about it? Because it's really about bringing some of these concepts to life, getting organizations to see the opportunities and, and channel it to a solution. Yeah, that's right. Look, I, you've had this experience and I have had also where you're, really have the just phenomenally good fortune of meeting people who have the combination of uh, humility and optimism, um, humility that uh, things aren't 
as good as they possibly could be, but also the optimism they can be much better. Right. And they also, in their own way, maybe they were influenced by Toyota, maybe by Admiral Rickover, maybe they just sort of stumbled onto this learning dynamic on their own. Um, mm-hmm. And there are certainly plenty of people who discovered um, discovered how to discover um, on on their own. And they go into uh, try and make this um, this learning dynamic where it's very easy if you recognize something amiss to call attention to it. And that uh, if you as if you as a reporter call attention to it, that someone will respond with the necessary mm-hmm. uh, technical or other expertise, but also that those managing the system will be um, acutely aware real time of um, where problems are being seen and how effectively they're being solved. Mm-hmm. Right? Because as a manager, you want to know both: both right. what problems do I have, but also what's my cap- what's the capability of my organization to dynamically digest these things. Mm-hmm. What we discovered is that. Even in places with absolutely positively 100% unadulterated good intent, right? And also, you know, 100% absolutely positively unadulterated um, uh, good mindset and behaviors. That sometimes it was just impossible by the situation for a problem to be seen and solved quickly. And why is that? Because you have these workforces which are um, distributed, and you start to start thinking about any facility of any meaningful mm. size. You know. If you got the person over there in the northeast quadrant and the others in the northwest quadrant, da da da, right? And not only is it is the workforce um, possibly um, distributed, but they may also be mobile. Mm. And the combination of uh, distribution and mobility means that um, visibility of what's going on, you know, quote unquote, in the field in the facility, yep. visibility is poor for sure. the responders who actually want to respond and be helpful, and to the managers who would really want to have a, a rich real time sense of the pulse of mm. things going on. So what we did is we created a, a very simple app, simple to use. Right. My, my tech guys would say, hey, it wasn't so simple to create. <laughs> simple to use, quick and easy. And what we do is we give um, those people, the reporters, that this, you know, those people who are distributed mm-hmm. in mobile and otherwise not connected, um, could be on a phone, could be on a tablet, in about 10 seconds to say, this is who I am. I'm having a problem. Sure. Uh, you know, and that, that could be the bare minimum. And then it could also be, where am I having the problem? What's the type of problem? And here's a quick picture of it. Right. But what we're trying to avoid are these outlandish reporting systems who are, which require in the course of work for you to disrupt the work and then start filling out field after field after field <laughs> on a keyboard or with your thumbs. We just want, you know, two, three, tap, 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 take a picture, boom, you're done. Right. And immediately, immediately, um, the reporter finds out that uh, you, Eric, are having difficulty and you need support. Mm-hmm. And um, this doesn't necessitate them going into a reporting uh, system and looking for uh, this report. And that report just, boom, it just pops up right away. Sure. And that the manager also has nearly immediate and certainly real-time, constantly updated awareness of how well the system is behaving. So anyway, that's what C to Solve is. It's, it's a way to uh, provide – it provides connectivity quick and easy so that you have visibility quick and easy so that um, you have this – as I was remember, we were talking about capability, mm-hmm. character, and connectivity. Yeah, that you have the connectivity for those who uh, need additional augmentation of capability, they get it. Right. Yeah. So anyway, if, if people want to come visit the site, you know, C two solve, and uh, we've got a little do it yourself demo. You can set it up and just play with it at home, or you know, with some of your colleagues at work. Thank you. I really appreciate all the 
the work you do around uh, really creating better learning organizations around operations that, that continuously improve. Um, as I said at the beginning, uh, your book, uh, High Velocity Edge, if you haven't read it, absolutely must pick it up. It's it's probably one of the most influential books I've read from a operational leadership standpoint. Um, so so phenomenal book, phenomenal stories. Uh, thank you so much, Steve, for coming on the show and sharing uh, your wisdom. Oh, Eric, that's very flattering, and you're quite <laughs> welcome. And I just want I want to say thank you because look, this the stuff that um, concerns you about safety specifically and operational yeah. excellence more generally, it's so profoundly important. Mm-hmm. And, and the fact that you are amplifying the message that much better is possible for everybody. Uh, I mean, you're spreading the good news, man. You're spreading the word, and so I, I think I, you know I, I want to say thank you for being that megaphone on these such important ideas, which I think fly in face, fly in the face of um, sort of the stylistic cynicism <laughs> that uh, that people carry around. Yeah. Now, this is this is a very optimistic, optimistic uh, message. Yes. And a very encouraging message that you spread. And I'm so delighted that you do this. Uh, thank you so much. I, and I really appreciate what you've shared. So again, thank you very much, Steve. And uh, I hope to be in touch again. Yes, sir. Thank you. Take care. Like what we do? Share this on your socials and tell everyone. Thank you for listening to the Safety Guru on C-Suite Radio. Leave a legacy. Distinguish yourself from the pack. Grow your success. Capture the hearts and minds of your teams. Fuel your future. Come back in two weeks for the next episode or listen to our sister show with the Ops Guru, Eric McCroskey. 